entering the Freedom Hut. GOP congressional members storm the skiff. The forgotten war in Ukraine. Hate speech in the First Amendment. Facebook gets grilled on Capitol Hill. And the five-hour workday. We have a fantastic show coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful Thursday here in New York City. I almost got the day wrong. Reminds me of the time I was filling in for Rush Limbaugh, and I think it was New Year's Eve. And I said, Happy Christmas Eve, everybody, to start off the show. That was that was really setting the tone there, wasn't it? You get the day wrong. You'd be amazed how stuff like that can happen, though, when you have a few million people listening to you for three hours. So what do we have now? We got a bunch of topics today that I wanted to get to that I just think are really interesting. That'll be good for uh, conversation today. Some water cooler stuff, you know, things you can talk to your buddies about. Um, I- I'm not going to spend that much of the show on the impeachment circus because I'm I'm hoping a few things. One is that the American people will just grow tired of this. That it, it, it's just going to be. Which is I also note that's why Democrats, in my estimation are trying to make this whole thing just go very, you know, as quickly as they can. They're they're hoping that they can control the process and control the timeline for maximum damage and impact against this president. But they have to know that eventually this is just going to get boring. And look, I'll tell you, uh, the Benghazi hearings stretched on too long. Some people get mad at me when I say that. But one, I, I told everybody as soon as Obama won the election, I said, forget about any accountability for Benghazi. Because the only real accountability was going to be political. And the moment that Obama and all of his people stayed in their government positions, all of the cabinet members and heads of various federal agencies, there's no way you're ever going to really get the truth. And by the time the next president came along, they would have already either covered the tracks or also just public interest would have waned down to the point where nobody would really pay attention. They, They stretched out the Benghazi hearings too long. Um, and that was just a, that was a political error, I think. Now, the initial hearings were absolutely worthwhile. These hearings are ridiculous, but here we are. We already know what was said on the phone call. I don't really care what the perception of different government employees who work for the Trump administration was about whether a policy issue felt a little too political for them, or I really don't, I frankly don't care. This is fundamentally what what President Trump did in Ukraine is not a crime. They keep trying to say it's a crime. It's not. Even if all of their assumptions and their framing of this and the narrative is true, there's not a statute that has been violated. Otherwise, you'd be hearing about it all the time. This is why you're also hearing the emoluments clause. Emoluments clause once again. That's supposed to be the one that ends the presidency. Sure. Good luck with that. But. This is a question of whether you think that the president did something that was a political violation, meaning that people would be uncomfortable supporting him because he wanted an investigation of Russia collusion origins stretching back to the 2016 election. That whole theory, which was used to get a special counsel going, 
which was used to investigate Trump associates, to throw Trump associates in prison. That happened. The media is still shockingly incurious about this. And they try to dismiss any new information about this as a conspiracy theory. And that's what you always hear. It's a conspiracy theory. Hmm. Well, what is the difference between having a series of events that you tie together with some uh, hypothesis that you then want to test out through an investigation and a conspiracy theory when it comes to Democrats? See, they make the judgment before there's the investigation. That's why they are so set on calling it a conspiracy theory. They're trying to negate whatever real information comes out of Durham and Attorney General Barr going to Italy, going to different foreign counterparts and saying, hey, what was going on here? Who was this Mifsud guy? And what was said to Alexander Downer of Australia and How did all this get going again? Who in the FBI thought that this was worthy of a full field investigation? Who thought that meeting with Christopher Steele, the author of the phony dossier, uh, that that was not just a a good usage of government time and taxpayer dollars, but that it should be in large part, almost entirely the basis for a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act FISA warrant? Those aren't questions that journalists would find interesting. No, of course not. I do believe that there's some degree of protecting themselves that is tied to all this as well. They recognize that the journalistic establishment in this country, which is which is a hard left establishment now, well out of the mainstream of your your standard American in their views of the world, their views of what's right and wrong. Uh, journalists have become a class unto themselves. Because to be a journalist, unless you're willing to operate in the much smaller, the much smaller pool of conservative media, which is what, what I do, but to be a journalist in the broader sense, you have to play by their rules and agree to their terms and also sign on for their agenda. If you don't sign on for the agenda, you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to have a, you're never going to write something that people read. You're never going to be on TV that people watch. It's just it's not going to happen. And so they're not interested in getting the truth as a class, as a group, almost like an entity. And it's it's couldn't be any more clear. They also are willing to run interference for what is the biggest partisan sham process. I think I, I mean, in some ways, it's actually worse than the special counsel. The special counsel was had more teeth, had more legal force behind it. But. You know, this they're completely at least there was some guidance and there was technically supposed to be oversight of the Department of Justice that Rod Rosenstein decided that there really wouldn't be any effective oversight of the Mueller probe was a decision that he made as a and as a Trump appointee. That's that's on him. And I, at some level, I suppose, well, the president couldn't remove him because everybody would have said it was the end of the republic. You know what I mean? Uh, but in this Congress is just making it up as they go along. And that then brings me to the latest here, the storming of the SCIF, Secure Compartmented Information Facility, I think. Man, I used to be so good with all the acronyms from my time in the CIA. I knew I knew all the cool acronyms. I could speak in acronym ease. I, I knew all the, I, I knew the military acronyms, intelligence acronyms, federal government stuff. Really was like just a constant alphabet soup bouncing around inside my head. And now I have to sort of think about them a little bit. I'm like, what's the name of the? I was so sad. Somebody asked me recently, or I was talking about the the French Domestic Intelligence Service, 
And it actually took me a minute to, to come up with it. Uh, the general directorate of security in, in France, uh, it took me a second. I couldn't remember. I said, man, Buck, the Bucks, are your, your CIA skills are getting rusty, my man. But I digress. So what happened with the skiff? You can hear a lot of journalists throw that term around today. They, they like to use the, the cool insidery government lingo. So what, what happened inside the skiff? Well, Representative Matt Gates, who I always feel like is the he is the guy who is the bad guy in the frat movie, you know, who's like giving the nerds. The, the protagonist nerds wedgies. He just kind of looks like, I'm just saying, he looks, people have said about me that I look like a bad guy from a John Hughes movie in the 80s. Sort of a similar idea. So maybe, you know, I, I, I see in others what some have seen in me. Although I'm so nice. I would never give the nerds wedgies. The nerds and I were, I was kind of a nerd. The nerds and I were always friends. Uh, but Matt Gates decided that he was going to pull, this is a stunt. Let's, let's just be honest about it. It's a stunt. It's, if you were a Democrat, if you're a leftist, you'd say this was raising awareness but they decided that there's this area in the Capitol where the classified information is kept and where members of Congress can see the classified stuff. And that's where this that's where all the happenings of this impeachment inquiry are really going on. It's happening behind closed doors and the stuff's being kept in classified settings. And that's why the leaks that are occurring are so precise and targeted always to damage Trump. Here's what uh, here's what Representative Gates, fresh from throwing nerds in the pool for showing up at his toga party, no doubt. Here's what he had to say. Play 13. We're going to go uh, and see if we can get inside. So uh, let's, uh, let's see if we can get in. Congressman, you get the idea. Sadie's just going to he's like, we're just we're, we're, we're going in. We're going in, bro. <laughs> Uh, okay, that's that's one way to go. So they're going in. Uh, no surprise here. The Democrats are are completely apoplectic in response to this. Representative uh, Ted Lieu, who is uh, facing none other than uh, my my friend Brandon Fricky, who we had on the show uh, as a independent candidate out in California. We really hope Brandon at least can make it a painful and expensive reelection for Ted Lieu if he's not even able to have a massive upset against him. But Ted Lieu, who's a Russia collusion conspiracy nut and has already debased any sense that anyone could ever have of his integrity in this process, uh, here, here's his version of why this whole walk into the skiff occurred. Play 11, please. You may wonder, why is it happening now? Because Bill Taylor gave a devastating opening statement yesterday. They're freaked out. They're trying to stop this investigation. They don't want to hear from um, witness Cooper today. Ah, so you, you got to spin it right away as, oh, they're doing this because they're so worried. After that, uh, that witness Taylor really just gave his impression of a complicated series of foreign policy decision making events that were often not even didn't directly involve him or or at least that he wasn't a first person participant in. So that's just that's just like his opinion, man. I mean, let's be honest. But I've got a better question for Ted Lou. Why can't we see the transcript of the many hours of questions after Taylor's testimony? Why, why is that not? Why is only the prepared, clearly anti-Trump Taylor statement leaked to the media? But we don't know what was said in the 
in the session afterwards. If there's any concern about classified information, then they should just scrub it and release a redacted version. Don't the American people have a right to know? Or is this just Congress operating like a country club where the membership committee gets to decide behind closed doors what goes and what doesn't and everyone else just gets to deal with it? That seems to be the decision that Schiff and Lou and Pelosi are, are happy with uh, the Democrats making here. That seems to be the purpose of all this, just to maintain maximum control, limit transparency. And this is couldn't be any more obvious. It's about getting a political scalp. This is about taking a revenge of sorts on Donald Trump for not succumbing to the special counsel investigation, which I think a lot of Democrats really believed was going to be the end of the Trump presidency. And they don't care how obvious it is that this is an unfair process, that this looks gross. Um, I'm just hoping that Republicans understand the nature of this fight, that there is no good faith and they should expect no good faith in return, uh, that hopefully the American people will understand what at least those of us who are not completely convinced that Donald Trump is a threat, to, a threat to the entire world and going to uh, cause some kind of a you know nuclear holocaust or something. I mean, the crazy stuff that people say, I can't even exaggerate it. There's no way to exaggerate it. They think he's a threat to the planet, to the species, human species. Uh, but people who don't buy into that, I'm, I am at least banking on, on some of them, if not all of them, to understand that this is a clearly political process that's just... It's just ugly politics. That's all. This isn't about the Constitution. It's not about, oh, a, a commander in chief run amok. It's really not even about Ukraine. It's not about the Kurds. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not about the emoluments clause. They hate Trump. Their candidates kind of stink so far. They know that. And they're doing whatever they can. No holds barred. You know, hitting below the belt, whatever, whatever they have to do politically, they will do. That's it. And so you're seeing this play out now. So why am I supposed to think that I should uh, feel the need every day to, to you know, refute every allegation or, oh, you know, let, let's concede some ground on this. Maybe maybe Trump should have been a little more careful in his wording. Maybe. No, I know what this I know what the purpose is here. I understand what's going on. Not only are they abusing the process, they're making the process up as they go along, specifically so they can abuse it. For obvious partisan ends. So. I mean, I, I just want this whole thing. Look, impeach him. Just impeach him. We know you're going to do it, Democrats. We know there's nothing else that this is really about. There, this isn't a fact-finding mission. This isn't to get to the bottom of things. This is all just a charade, right? This is kabuki theater. This is for show. Oh, sure, we, we had all these witnesses and all this testimony. Meanwhile, most of their surrogates are going on TV saying President Trump already admitted to the crime. Well, if he admitted to it, why not just impeach him tomorrow? Oh, it's all about shaping perception. It's just dirty politics, folks. Uh, you had a number of Republican members who were not on the committees of jurisdiction try to go into uh, this skiff area, a secured area. Uh, they also brought in their cell phones, which is a violation. They violated the House rules um, by trying to crash committees, of which they don't sit on. Uh, all of this is an attack right on the investigation. It's an attack on the investigation. Oh, good heavens. What will we do now? I have got to tell you, I mean, I, I know something about the rules governing classified information and, and skiffs. 
having had to live under them, really live under them, not the way that Congress, where they're constantly leaking and messing up, really live under them for years. And uh, this I can tell you, uh, the whole purpose of not bringing it, first of all, the, it seems that some of the members of Congress left their cell phones outside. They knew that that's a violation of rules. We said it's a violation. You know, no one goes to prison for this, okay? It's it's something you're not supposed to do. You can have your clearance revoked. Usually you'll get a warning. I mean, it depends on the circumstances. But the whole reason it exists is they don't want a device that can transmit sound, can transmit audio to relay outside of a classified environment. You know, just theoretically, never mind if somebody could have their phone hacked and then uh, turned on or, or opened up as a, a eavesdropping or listening device. Uh, you wouldn't want anybody to, say, get on a phone and capture nearby conversation that's classified. So I understand that. But these, no one's talking about classified when they're storming in there and saying, what's going on? And blah, blah. I mean, it, it, it did look a little bit like a GOP toga party since I mentioned that before. It was a little like toga, toga. You know, they're just running in there and making a lot of noise. And, you know, I guess that's cultural appropriation, isn't it, from ancient Rome? Romulus and Remus looking down on us even though they're apocryphal figures, looking down on us from heaven, probably with Mother Wolf above them, like, why you got to steal our stuff? Why is it going to be like that? Well, if you really think about it, a toga would probably be a very comfortable garment, especially in the summertime when maximum aeration is really a welcome thing. I always look at people who wear tight jeans in summer in hot climates and think, how do they do it? It doesn't seem comfortable to me. So Matt Gates and the rest stormed into there. They got it. They got some attention. I, I Maybe it made the point. I don't know. I'm not sure that I would uh, be the first one to line up behind Gates on this one. But here we are. Uh, but are, are any of them going to get in trouble for bringing their phones in? I don't know, man. The, now we're going to complain about that rule, too. Now we're going to act like, oh, no, the, the sanctity of the skiff was violated for you know a few seconds, and then people walked out. Who knows? Who knows? It's all just so ridiculous, isn't it? These are the people who are supposed to be passing laws, by the way, that deal with problems in the country and make your life better. Theoretically, Congress is supposed to do that. When was the last time it felt like Congress really did that? I think it's worth asking that question. Think about that one for a minute. By golly, if they're going to do it, do it in public. Don't hide it from the American people. Show your face where we can all see the travesty that you are trying to foist on America and the degradation of our republic that you are engaged in. We demand open proceedings. The American people deserve nothing less. Their representatives in Congress deserve nothing less. Mo Brooks fired up there. I always thought Mo Brooks was... uh, Pretty solid. We've had him on the show a bunch of times in the past, in the early days. Um, but h- how is this not a clear case? There shouldn't really be any counterargument here. There's, there isn't a serious counterargument. What you always hear from the talking points brigade of Democrats on TV and in the media is, "Oh, we don't want there to be a, uh, we don't want there to be coordination of witnesses." Come on, you can. First of all, you can say that about any congressional hearing. Second of all, this isn't a criminal inquiry this is a polit this is an entirely political hearing the only real criminal sanction that anybody would face unless they confess you know oh like i did this thing uh you know 20 years ago and the statute of limitations is still running uh it would be lying under oath to congress so why would any of these people you know, they're acting under the assumption that people would be willing to lie uh, about a material fact here specifically to help one side or the other and isn't it more likely that you'll get truthful answers from people if they're going to have to say this stuff out in public, really? 
I, I would offer I would argue at least that for many of these bureaucrats, they are much more likely to tell the truth if they know that everybody's watching than behind closed doors when they think, oh, well, if I get something wrong or let's say I shade the truth a little bit, especially if I shade the truth that Adam Schiff wants me to in a way that hurts Trump, in a way that is helpful to the Democratic cause here of destroying Trump, well, then we'll just clean it up afterwards. They're not going to bring any charges against me. Where are the charges against the people? Just, just, just to prove my point. So this isn't just some wild theory. Where are the charges against the people who to try and help the Democrat cause of defeating Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination, lied demonstrably, clearly, beyond a reasonable doubt, lied about Brett Kavanaugh committing heinous crimes. They lied to Congress. Where's that situation right now? Why haven't those people been brought up on on charges? Because the people that try to throw people in prison for minor crimes tend to be for minor crimes of process involving a politically sensitive topic it's the left it's democrats it's the totalitarian mindset most conservatives i know are usually like ah whatever i mean if it's not that important no one got hurt you know give them give them a warning maybe that needs to change although as i've recently been saying you know we we try to make the left live under their own rules and they just don't so i'm not sure that that strategy whether it's about what you can say or speech speech rules or rules for politics they just embrace the hypocrisy. They, they embrace a two-tiered system of something for Democrats and something else for Republicans. How do we get beyond that? I don't, I don't know. Then it just turns into a, an all-out battle for power. It's a power dynamic playing out. Um, but what do we see happening right now? Well, I mean, I, I think that the, the Democrats are worried about their candidates Joe Biden's fundraising is abysmal for the moment, which means the people, the money seems to have been cut off first. And I think the polls are going to follow very soon. Um, you know, Obama and Clinton's biggest donors, according to Politico here, are behind Biden. So the, the Democrat, there really is such a thing as the Democrat establishment. Or when I talk about the Democrat apparatus, it's the major media outlets, which all favor Democrats, but you know who are they supporting in this? The major donors, the big dollar donors, the major donors who have connections into media, into corporate America, with the unions. That's the Democrat establishment. And they have been completely carrying not so bright, deeply unimpressive Joe Biden on their shoulders this whole time. Well, you know, he's it's kind of we got some of the Obama connection going on here with him. So he's the one that we can make the next president. But what anybody who understands politics, especially in this current era, would know is but didn't work for Hillary. Why would that work for Joe Biden against Trump, a non-traditional candidate who, by the way, is raising huge sums of money for his reelection? So and the, the, the war chest, you know, Hillary outspent Trump dramatically and Trump still won. Remember that, that this time around, that dynamic may change quite a bit. Um, the money that goes to the Trump campaign, I'm sure, will be much closer to what it was uh, to uh, rather be much closer to the Democrat challenger, whoever that may be, than it was when Biden and when uh, Trump was running against Hillary. But that's part of the anxiety here. And this is why I think. Even saner Democrats in the Congress are looking at this whole impeachment procedure process, whatever, and saying, well, I guess we got to do something. I guess we got to go on with this here. I mean, Representative Steve Scalise raises the 
most important question. If we had an honest press, they'd be asking this every day. Why is Schiff doing this in secret? What does Schiff have to hide here? Producer Mark, would you please play Congressman Scalise uh, 16, if you would? What is Adam Schiff trying to hide? I think that's a question so many people have, so many of my colleagues have, so many people in the press should have, is through those hidden closed doors over there, Adam Schiff is trying to impeach a president of the United States behind closed doors, literally trying to overturn the results of the 2016 election a year before Americans get to go to the polls to decide who's going to be the president. And frankly, it should be the people of this country who decide who's going to be the president, not Nancy Pelosi and not Adam Schiff in secret behind closed doors. What better example could you have of disrespect for our democracy. I know it's a republic, but Democrats always call it our democracy. We have a democratic process for a republic, a Republican form of a republic as our government. Uh, You know, we have voting. So I guess it's democratic in that sense. But we do not live in a democracy, certainly not a direct democracy. But just for our institutions, right? We've heard so much about that. What greater disrespect could one show for our institutions than in the run up to an election year, trying to create a brand new and largely secret internal political process that does at least have the possibility of ejecting a president from office before the American people can vote again and decide. I think that's very unlikely. I think the percent, I think the chance that Republicans would go along with, well, it's really not, it's really even not about a percentage chance. What would it take for Republican senators to go along with the Democrats, or at least enough of them to go along, you get to a two-thirds vote. It would take something to emerge that's brand new, that is so uh, so unbecoming and unacceptable for a president that I have to come here on this show, for example, and say to you, uh, sorry, guys, President Trump's got to go. How high is that threshold? It's wherever we've been with the Russia collusion stuff and the emoluments clause and obstruction, that's sort of down here at, you know, for in terms of my outrage, that's not even at sea level, that's below sea level. And we'd need to get to like K2, you know, the really big mountain in the Himalaya range. Uh, I think it's in the Himalayas, isn't it? I hate, I hate when I get any trivia wrong on this show. You know, someone actually told me recently that my name comes from middle Latin for... Uh, sacristan. So sexton actually comes from the sacristy and that's where the sexton, the person who takes care of the church. I don't even know that. I was just hanging out with a friend of mine and she tells me this. I was like, oh, wow. Learn something new every day. But anyway, hopefully, hopefully I got that one right. The point is, it would have to be a monumentally massive, entirely new revelation. I mean, this is not even the universe of that. Short of that, which I would say is not even a 1% chance. It's probably a one in, you know, one in a thousand, one in 10,000% chance. They're not going to remove the president, which then raises the, why the heck are they doing this? And if they're doing this, they're going to impeach him, by the way, mark my words, they will impeach this president. You will have an impeached president Trump going into reelection in 2020. And they're doing that because it's what the base demands. It's what the far left emotionally requires to deal with their hurt feelings after Hillary didn't become president. It was like so mean. She was totally going to shatter that glass ceiling. Going into the 2020 election, that's what this is all about. But to use a process that should be reserved for serious and egregious violations 
of law and or of expected conduct for a president. This is where the high crimes and misdemeanors. What is that? Well, you know, judges used to get impeached for drunkenness on the job. If you look back at impeachment, it's happened more to federal judges than any other office. And it's happened for, I think it was like loutishness and drunken behavior. I don't know. Toga, toga. I mean, stuff like that basically could get you, um, could get you kicked out of being a judge back in the day. Uh, bribery. But bribery is also a crime. But you know, bribery would be something, where, you know, if, if the president of the United States accepted a bag of cash to sign a bill, yeah, he's got to go. He hasn't done that. Right now we're just getting into hypotheticals. It's crazy town. But to use this process the way that they have in such a nakedly partisan way and pretend that they're doing it to protect our democracy and the will of the people, they're just whatever the truth is, they are doing the opposite of that and saying that it is the truth. Whatever they're accusing Trump of, they are the ones actually doing. We are living in the upside down world, but this is what happens when you have Democrats who unfortunately have far too much cultural power, far too much media power still. And, you know, look, we, we don't have enough. It's a frustration. Man. We, we don't have enough uh, cable news outlets for an alternative point of view to left wing lunacy. We don't have enough. We've got one great one. We need more. We don't have enough uh, platforms. We don't have enough major websites that are conservative out there yet. I mean, this is, this is a whole other part of the discussion. But remember, they have a massive advantage in that realm going in, which is why all these polls I see are, you know, 55% of Americans want the impeachment inquiry to continue. That's because they're being told the president did something horrible. This is being magnified across the media spectrum by partisans who hate Trump and people that are casual consumers of the news, which is what most folks who even care at all about the news are, right? I do this for a living. All of you, I'm assuming, are people that do other things with your lives, as you should. There's a few hosts who listen to this show because they need to pick up some pointers. But nonetheless, this is where we're, this is where we are, folks. I know it's improper grammar. This is where we're at right now. We don't deserve a president who goes out of his way to make life in America harder, crueler, pettier. He said... He's working for the, got, the forgotten American. Well, he forgot about the forgotten American. Joe Biden thought that was clever, I can assure you. He's working for the forgotten American. He forgot about the forgotten American. <sighs> That's going to be your next president? He's not even entertaining. Say what you will about Trump. Guy can be a little thin-skinned, a little erratic, a little uh, who knows. He is very entertaining, and he does not back down. That gives that gets you a lot, at least in my book these days in politics. And he, on core conservative issues, is fighting for our team. You know, it's sometimes it's worth asking because this is where I also separate from a lot of my uh, never Trump former colleagues and friends. Let's say we found out in ten years that Trump this whole time was really a he was a, a Democrat pretending to be a conservative. If we look back at hopefully an eight years of Trump presidency and it has been overwhelmingly, not entirely, spending too much money. There's some stuff that's not limited government, that's not constitutional conservatism, but overwhelmingly has been in line with what we want. Isn't that why you elect a politician? Do, do you even should you even care? Would you care? Um, if a if a person turned out internally felt like they were a Democrat, but. You know, uh, they, they decided to, for a period of time, identify as a Republican. There we have it. 
their political identity and do things that Republicans and conservatives want them to do. Isn't that the single most important thing? This is for elected office, right? This is, he's not the leader of a church. He's not the uh, Dalai Lama, big hitter, the Lama, flowing robes, beautiful. Um, where were we? Oh, yes. Speaking of the uh, small fundraising situation for Joe Biden right now, you can tell that there are a bunch of candidates who are just hoping that the Bi- the push behind Biden from the establishment is just going to get transferred to them. This and you know who they are. It's Kamala. It's Booker. It's Buttigieg. It's maybe maybe Klobuchar. Uh, you know, there, but there's a few. There's a few who have to know that they can't win with the current trend, but they're they might get that that switch of the Obama and uh, Obama and Clinton donor network. And once the media, you know, well, when does CNN decide that they're going to change their favorite candidate? Because CNN always wants to make sure that they're helping whichever Democrat's going to win, because for them, it's about access as much as anything else. They want to be on the good side of a Democrat administration, get all the big interviews. Remember, big interviews are just money. If we're really going to break down ways that our politics are are corrupted and, and, and I don't have the answer to what to do about it, every time a president decides to give an interview to one news outlet over another, it's it's the equivalent of dollars. It really is. It's ratings. It's money. And yet, what are we going to do? We can't, you know, I can't demand an interview with the president of the United States. I mean, I've already done one, but I mean, I, I can't demand to sit down with different Democrats, you know, Ocasio-Cortez. Wouldn't that be fantastic if I get her to sit with me? You just like are not the nicest and best person ever. And like, that's so untrue, AOC. She'd actually really like me if she got to know me, but it's true of all the Democrats. It's one of the reasons why I uh, have some Democrats who listen to the show. They write to me. Some of them are secret Democrats that I don't want people to know or they're secret Team Buck, even though they're Democrats. Oh, but I I wanted to get to this before. Cory Booker is saying that, hey, if you need somebody to replace Biden as the establishment guy that you're propping up, it's me. Play it. So those Democrats who are looking for an alternative now, I want to make the case today very directly that look no further. I can and have excited a diverse coalition of voters. I can and have united progressives and moderates. And I will not divide this party and drag others down in personal attacks for the sake of winning a short-term polling boost. We need to keep the long view in mind, not just winning a primary, but beating Trump, understanding that this is a moral moment. Yeah, still not going to happen, Cory Booker. Still not going to happen, but nice try. Not quite, not quite at Spartacus level yet. It's just not not there. So we'll have to see who does replace Biden because someone is going to. I think it'll be Warren. Facebook up on Capitol Hill once again. Facebook has become a company that is a bit of a punching bag for pretty much everyone in politics. Now, everyone finds something about Facebook to be upset about. And it is a very, very powerful uh, company. I was going to say country. It really, in a sense, is its own country. It has... A level of wealth that is uh, akin to what you'd uh, you'd see in a lot of uh, probably actually wealthier than a lot of countries. Now that I think about it, um, 
But Facebook is it? Look, it's an incredible story. We've all seen the social network. We all know what Facebook is. We use it. I use it. We talk about it. Uh, we we pull from it for a segment of this show. It has become a part of our lives, and yet we're still figuring out what are our expectations of it. What should Facebook be required to do by the government? What should customers, which remember, you are the product. You're giving them all your information all the time. They're micro-targeting ads to you. There's a reason why when you look up, hey, I want some ostrich skin neon green boots. All of a sudden you see an ad for those ostrich skin. Or, yeah, ostrich, ostrich skin's a thing. I think right, those are expensive. It's the, it's the fancy boots. Some of you probably know a lot more about cowboy boots than I do. Anyway, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was up on Capitol Hill. And one of the things, one of the indignities that he has to suffer through, which is, I suppose, not that big a deal because he's worth, I don't know how many tens of billions of dollars. He's a very, very wealthy man. And he's about my age, maybe a year or two older than me, I think. He's about my age. I am not worth tens of billions of dollars, but producer Mark and I are working hard on it right now. So we're going to get there. I just have to invent in a generation-defining company that is effectively an unlimited money machine that can be scaled out globally. I think we're on to something with those history podcasts, though. I think we're going to get there. So a bunch of different things, a bunch of different avenues of attack against Facebook, which, as we know, social media platforms are going to be more potent in many ways in the next election than one that they've ever been before. More people are on them. More people are using them. Generation Z and the millennials, your Generation Z, producer Mark, Generation Z and the millennials are now a enor an enormous voting block. And that means that people that have grown up or at least have at a young age started using YouTube and Facebook and these things. Are we getting a gender? Oh, no, you're just doing work. I thought you were going to weigh in on behalf of Generation Z. Well, I'm a millennial. That so. you're, you're a millennial? Yes. Well, how much younger would you have to be to be Generation Z? Much younger. I was, I'm 26. Yeah, but what's, doesn't that, I don't know where. I, I think like 98 or 99 is the cutoff. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, fine. So he's a, he's a millennial. Technically, we're both millennials, although he pretends like I'm not. You're a much older millennial. I know. I'm an old fuddy-duddy millennial with creaky bones and back pain. Uh, so Zuckerberg's on Capitol. He's getting all this beef because you're going to have all these people that are trying to, well, there's just a lot of grandstanding. It's an opportunity to be like, oh, look at me stand up at this big, powerful company. But the left got used to, for a long time, these Silicon Valley super companies, these giants of, of communication, digital communication, effectively operating as subsidiaries of the DNC. I mean, they were so biased in favor of Democrats in ways that we've seen some of it, but there's so much that we've never even found out and we know we'll never find out. There are many different uh, plausible, I would say, theories about what the real advantage was for Democrats, particularly in the last two or three election cycles because of social media platforms. And we'll never really know. They don't. They won't submit to independent auditing. We know that they play this game where they go backwards and forwards between being a platform versus being a publisher. And we also know that the culture within these Silicon Valley companies, the culture of the San Francisco Bay Area, that part of Northern California, is the most progressive left-wing enclave in the entire United States. 
I mean, New York City's got some crazy stuff. You got to Brooklyn and everyone's, you know, a Bernie Sanders voter who's pickling their own beets and walking around in clothing that they made from sustainable, organic, salvaged cotton from fair trade workers or something. I, I don't know. But San Francisco Bay Area is the single greatest concentration of left-wing ideology by voter registration and also just by, I think, by sheer dollar figures they can pump into the system of anywhere in the entire country. And that has, we, we've seen that have a very important influence or a very powerful influence on the way that Facebook and YouTube and these other companies operate. So it is with that we see Democrats and Republicans at some level, but Democrats really trying to, it seems to me, to to bully Facebook at some level to to bully them and to convince them that they need to take a more active role. They liked the old way where if you wanted to run an ad for a company that sells guns, it would just mysteriously disappear. Right. They liked the old way when we were all led to believe. And this was for a long time. We were led to believe that the mainstream media was neutral and nonpartisan. And that was a big fat lie. And we've more or less. I mean, if you still believe that, that's on you. Right. If you still believe it, you're just not very savvy. You're not really paying attention. I mean, you don't believe it because you listen and watch the show. But I mean, if one still believes that uh, we also and this is more understandable because it's a newer situation. We have less information and less history to run on. But there's also the circumstance of thinking that these massive social media companies are public utilities. Right? It's just it's like the phone lines. You call whoever you want to call. Phone company doesn't care who you are. You know, that's it's just something that people can use that does not take political positions. That turns out to not be true. And it's with that in mind now that we see a pushback. You've got uh, Congressman Hawley, for example, Josh Hawley, who's trying to force these companies to adopt some rules to protect the basic idea of them as a free speech platform. And there's some movement in that direction. I say Mark Zuckerberg is it fortunately doesn't seem like a dogmatic leftist. I, I have to be honest. I, he doesn't seem like a dogmatic leftist. I, he's certainly a businessman. The fact that this guy managed to stay in control of his company through all that stuff means that he's he's got a a capitalist's killer instinct for sure. He, he understands how to fight boardroom stuff. And. I think that there's a worry among the Democrats that they won't have this secret weapon anymore of social media platforms that effectively do their bidding intentionally or unintentionally. And that's where you had AOC, who doesn't really understand the First Amendment, definitely doesn't understand the Second Amendment, but doesn't really understand the First Amendment, uh, trying to score some points here against Mark Zuckerberg. We have we have a few moments. Here we go. Um on demonstrably false political ads, here's what AOC said to Mr. Zuckerberg. Play 19, please. Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad, and I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being, uh, from it, from the, for in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Um, so we can, so you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, 
Uh, and I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual in, Yes, in most cases, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are So you won't take them down. Character for themselves. So you won't take, you may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. Uh, Congresswoman, it's, uh, it, it depends on the context that it shows up, organic post, as the, the treatment is a little... One ah, see, AOC and the, and the, the left... Don't understand the nuances here. Don't understand the competing values. All they want is that they can have an expectation to bully Facebook as well as other social media, bully Twitter, bully uh, Google, you know, although Google's pretty left wing, but, but, but bully any of them into doing their bidding when it comes to the suppression of speech. She's really asking Mark Zuckerberg if a poli- you know, if Trump says that if he runs an ad that he's you know, the greatest president of all time. I mean, can't that that's not true. Can we get that taken down? She might say, oh, but no, that's fine. That's an opinion. All right. What's a fact versus an opinion to Democrats? They run around calling the investigation of Russia collusion origins a conspiracy theory all day. So does that mean that anything about the Russia collusion origins, uh, any any opinion that somebody raises on that should be discounted? See, Democrats have abandoned free speech. They want control of speech, cancel culture and social justice. These concepts, which have risen to be much more important to them and much more potent than what should be a, a universal and shared value for all Americans, which is the right of free expression and, and, a, and not just a free press, but freedom of speech, free ideas, the free exchange thereof. That is now secondary to the ability to control the conversation and decide what is acceptable to be aired in public, what is acceptable for people to find out about. Um, she's pushing him on fact-checking. Here's a fact that I want checked. I'm a Republican politician, let's say, and I want to run an ad on Facebook that says there are only two genders. Is that false? Does that get taken down? Is that a lie? There's a lot of political implications of that, by the way. There are two genders, male and female. Am I a liar? Ask a Democrat that. Some of them will say yes. They'll say that's that's an untrue thing. That is propaganda. Maybe it's even hateful. It could even be hate speech. There are two genders. What does Facebook do with that? I, I, that's all I wanted to say. A big, like a bumper sticker that pops up on your Facebook feed. There are two genders. Hmm. What would they do? What would AOC want done in that situation? Is that a spin issue or is that a fact issue? When they're demanding that politicians, uh, that, that campaign ads, which are very important going into election cycle, Facebook ads, this is how you really get your message to people. I mean, I never, I live in a very blue state here. I barely ever see political ads. They don't spend any, they don't spend any money trying to win over the presidential vote here in New York City. But Facebook stuff you'll see, Facebook stuff you can see anywhere across the country. And if you're telling me that I have, an, an, uh, I have to make a choice between a very successful Facebook campaign for my political candidate or running a bunch of, uh, of you know, TV ads, I think I'd probably do Facebook. I think it's, it's better. It's more likely to have the intended. Oh, people would argue about this, but I think it's more likely to have the intended outcome. They want control of this. Democrats are concerned that they no longer have 
the they no longer have the comfort of the expectation that Facebook and YouTube and these other companies will do what they want them to do officially and unofficially and suppress conservative points of view. Remember, fake news, which Donald Trump turned on the media, was initially a charge that was made about people supporting Trump spreading lies on the Internet. They were the ones the initial accusation of fake news was made by the media against the Trump campaign, really, or against people that support Donald Trump. And then he turned it around on them as uh, as a way of saying, OK, well, sometimes people say things about me or that would that would support me that aren't true. But you, The New York Times and you, The Washington Post, also publish stories that are fake, publish stories that are not true. So what are we to make of that? fake news and then it why do you think it upsets them so much because he took what they threw at him and he threw it back at them and it hit them even more how could you even begin to do this though to have fact checkers regular politifact for example is a joke i mean all you know snopes i mean these different fact checking sites are preposterously biased but this is the same the same version or or the, the same basic uh circumstance that plays out with the left all you know they they say all oh, this this is the science supports us and then you say well actually you know the science but but they like to pretend oh but no but science supports us except in these places where it doesn't oh the fact checkers support us well well that's because the fact checkers are a bunch of liberal journalists posing as fact checkers isn't that surprising it's not surprising to anybody but i have to say zuckerberg did a pretty good job up there on capitol hill you know he's he's leaning into this a little bit if he had some charisma, he might actually run for office one day. Vaughn, can you explain why you've named The Daily Caller, a publication white, uh, well-documented with ties to white supremacists as an official fact-checker for Facebook? Congresswoman, sure. We actually don't appoint the independent fact-checkers. They go through an independent organization called the Independent Fact-Checking Network that has a rigorous standard for who they allow to, uh, to serve as a fact-checker. So... You would say that white supremacist tied uh, publications meet a rigorous standard for fact-checking? Thank you. Uh, Congresswoman, I would say that we're not the one assessing that, that standard. The International Fact-Checking Network is the one who is setting that standard. Wow. Ocasio-Cortez calling the Daily Caller a white supremacist tied News site. I know many people at the caller. I have friends at the caller. It uh, is a place that is perhaps best known, or one of the reasons best known is Tucker Carlson was for many years the editor in chief. I don't think he still is. He might still be technically. White supremacist high daily caller. I mean, what a for someone to be talking about facts and truth, and then to call the Daily Caller a white supremacist tied news site, based on based on what exactly? I mean, my friend uh, Sagar and Jetty, who is of of Indian heritage, who worked at the Daily Caller for years and then took over for me at Hill TV, uh, was tweeting about this today. She's like, "What are they? What is she even talking about? What what is this? To call a to call a publication like that white supremacist? I mean, this this would be like saying, yeah, you know, the Huffington Post, a publication that's favorable to Islamic terrorists. I, I'm just gonna say it." I, I don't have any basis for it, really. I mean, I disagree with their take on radical Islam and you know, I can make a case. But, you know, at some point, we've got to stay within some realm of reality. Right. At some point, you've got to have some backup for these kinds of allegations. And it's just a perfect example of why 
you could never trust the left in a regime of, of censorship to do anything other than suppress ideas they don't like, not adhere to any generally applicable principles, and just do everything that they can to make it effectively impossible for people to have a contrary point of view. That's really the, that's the country they want to live in. AOC, the Democrat socialist left wants an America where there's only one acceptable point of view on any important issue and other points of view are to be actively suppressed and punished and eradicated. That's very clear. They, they do not believe in the free exchange of ideas. They do not believe that people could have controversial opinions about things, which I would also note, you know, one of the great advantages that we have had over other cultures and civilizations in the world, places like China, where there's a tremendous amount of ideological conformity, is that you have people that will break the mold here, whether it's in science or in politics or any number of things. It's, in fact, the person that takes the unpopular idea and then wins people over to his or her side that often moves the needle more than anybody else. But collectivists hate that. Let's talk about a five-hour workday. No, I mean, really, let's actually talk about a five-hour workday for a second. Sounds like a great idea to me, I've got to tell you. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Well, it turns out that some people have began to try this out. They're willing to see if the basic theory here would be correct. And, and more or less, here's, here's how it goes. A tremendous amount of office culture, which I say with a degree of, ooh, gives me a, a shudder because I've spent way too much time, especially at the CIA, office culture was just a big part of it, man. You're just in those cubicle farms, just walking around, drinking coffee, making copies, you know, all that stuff. And you, you realize that time in the office has been taken, you know, in our minds, this has been made to equate with productivity and being a worthwhile employee. And we've all gotten used to this idea of an eight-hour workday. Well, the eight-hour workday really comes from the period of the Industrial Revolution, where hours in the assembly line or, you know, hours in the factory did directly, because there was no way to go beyond whatever it was that you were doing hour by hour, really. Now, the factory could become more efficient, but you as a cog in that machine were just doing some, the longer you were there, the more output there would be. And that has become, I think, a, a standard throughout really the, 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 really the whole world, this idea of an eight-hour workday. And a lot of people I know are listening to me and they're saying, Buck, I wish I could work eight hours. I work 10 hours a day or I got overtime every day. And it's, you know, it's crazy. And I'm producer Mark. This guy sometimes comes in here. I'm like, how many overnight shifts can you, can you work like four or five days in a row before you just show up like a little puddle? I'm just working 80 hours this week. You're working 80 hours this week. Yeah. You and the wife going to Tahiti or something for the, for the Jamaica. Know? Okay. Very nice. Yes. Good, Not good. quite Tahiti, but yeah, very yeah. nice. Still got to pay for it. I exactly. Get yeah. So 80 hours this guy's working over here. Now, he has to be here for the hours of the shows that are on the air. So, so there are cases where there are there's a, a necessity of time spent on these enterprises that it doesn't, you know, you have to be there, right? I do a three-hour radio show every day. 
I, I got to be able to put out those three hours of radio every day. There's no way for me to do a 30-minute show and cover three hours. Right? So there's some – okay, put that aside for a moment, though. The general thesis that we all operate under is more – you know, eight hours is what you sh- – is the standard. It's the standard. And that the more hours you spend in the office, the more productive you're going to be. Well, it turns out there's a, there are some companies now that are testing this in Bielefeld, Germany, for example. Yeah. So, like, why don't we have more time to go to the, I don't know, the sculpture gardens and drink some uh, Hefeweizen, perhaps, and, you know, I don't know, go dancing, go listen to some techno music? If I'm working eight to ten hours a day, it's very difficult. I get very tired. Yeah. So, they're trying this out in Bielefeld, Germany. Lasse Rheingans, guten Tag has realized, according to the Wall Street Journal, that taking time to check Facebook or respond to reply all emails distracted him from work goals and caused him to spend extra hours at the office rather than with his young daughters. So when he acquired a small tech consulting firm in late 2017, he introduced a radical idea. Reduce the work day to five hours from the standard eight while leaving worker salaries and vacation time at the same level. They were not sure if I was kidding, he says. Some of them thought I was testing them but I was being serious. Employees, they, they ran this whole test. He says that employees can, in fact, deliver the same output during a focused 25-hour work week as in 40 hours interrupted with distractions. I think this is the way things should go in the future. I'm just going to say it. I think this is what should happen. I, I got a whole bunch of Buck's Radical Ideas. Here's one. Let's stop waking up kids, especially in adolescence, at... 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, jamming them into a classroom at you know 8 a.m. and making them sit in that classroom or a series of classrooms until 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon every day. This is nuts. I was, I was exhausted for most of high school. You play sports after school. You do a couple of hours. You go to a, you know, you go to a, uh, you know, basket, you're playing a basketball game or something. Or you go play, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a football game and you... You end up exhausted, and and you're, yet you're you're put in. And look, let's be honest. I think the reason that kids go to school so early is because parents want to drop the kids off on their way to work, and so the parent schedule drives what we're doing with kids. But it's not necessarily best for the kids. Kids need more sleep. I'm just gonna say it. I would have been a better, more productive student in high school if I could have slept till nine, nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning. That would have been great. And keep them later if you need to. You know. Get anyway. I got a I got a whole bunch of radical ideas. I got a lot of things. I got to put out there that I want changed. And there's that book, The Five-Hour Work Week. Now, that's really radical. This is the five-hour work day. But for those of you that, like me, have been cubicle creatures, which I, you know, it's, I did it. I put in my years. I put in my years in, the, years in the cubes, man. Oh, I fought with fax machines and Printers, printers were the bane of my existence. Oh, Buck, why don't you do this and collate it and then you're going to scan it and then you're going to put it in the PDF and the blah. I was like, what? I had to figure this stuff out all the time. That's why that scene in Office Space where they take the printer out and they beat it with baseball bats was so, so sweet. But I've spent way too many hours in, in offices and I can tell you that I'd say, and, and bringing back to Office Space, remember when he says, the main character says, you know, I think in any given week, I do an actual, about an, 
about 40 minutes a day, I think he says, of real actual, or maybe it's 40 minutes a week, real actual work. And anyone who spends time in an office will tell you this is true. Anybody who spends time, uh, you know, in the office will will let you know that most, that, that if if they were told, here are your tasks, here's the output that needs to be done, and if you got it done by one or two o'clock in the afternoon, you could leave, would they be able to eliminate distractions and have a more concerted effort over that period so that the same, the company gets the same benefits, but they have a shorter work day? And also, does the company then have a happier and even more productive and more creative employee on their hands? And I think the answer is yes. Think about all the distractions, the distractions of social media, personal email, phone calls, walking around, talking to producer Mark about whether baseball or hockey is more boring. I mean, these are the things that can really divert you from the work that you have to do. See, he's working right now, so I'm I'm poking at him when he actually has things he has to do. I heard you, and it's noted. Yeah, okay. You can, mm. He can get back at me later. Point here being that there's all this stuff that distracts us all, but we're like eight hours, eight hours, and sometimes nine hours. Then you get into law where they have all the billable hour stuff, so they, they just want to spend as many hours. The, the incentive of our whole corporate law structure is to extend out and spend as much time doing your tasks as possible to bill you as much as possible instead of making the whole process shorter and more efficient for everyone so that it would be based more on outcome. You could have more of a retainer schedule. You pay somebody to work on the project, the idea being that you know from start to finish it'll cost X and just do the bids that way. No, what they do is they get a, a senior associate, gives it to the junior associate, gives it to the paralegal, blah, blah, blah. That's all. It's just all meant to suck as much money from you as possible. That's what the corporate legal system is doing. Right now, every lawyer listening across America is like, yep, it's totally true. And all of them know that they're being told more billable hours, more billable hours. All right. What if we could start to develop an office culture? Remember, the, these things are new inventions in human history. The, the idea of an eight-hour workday, a 40-hour work week, uh, you know, weekends. These are new phenomenon in, in the history of our species. I mean, relatively speaking, this stuff's only been around for you know, 100, 150 years, depending on what exactly we're talking about. There was no work week before. Yeah, maybe people had Sundays off, Lord's the day of the Lord's uh, rest in, in America at certain points in our history. But other than that, it's like you, you open the store if you wanted to do business. You close the store if there's no business. I mean, this is the way things work. You, you're running a farm. You got to make sure you plant the crops and you get the food. There's actually a fascinating guy on this particular topic. His name is Naval Ravikant. And I sat, I have very rarely listen to a podcast, someone else's podcast, not that I listen to my own podcast more than once, but uh, someone else's podcast more than once. I listened to Joe Rogan and Naval Ravikant. Uh, maybe this was a couple of months ago that they, they first sat down together. And Naval is a very sharp guy, very smart guy. And Joe Rogan's a fantastic interviewer. And it's just interesting because he approaches things from the perspective of Interesting guy who's curious, though, and knows what he doesn't know and wants to get answers so that everybody learns more who's listening, which is a great, a, a great approach for for any media endeavor. And it's why his podcast is, is so huge. But I was listening to this Naval Ravikant exchange with him and Naval 
has a whole theory. And about, he's a he started AngelList. He's really he's a Silicon Valley guy who's rational and reasonable. He's not a leftist. He's not a conservative. He just approaches things on an individual issue basis and tries to find out what's true and what works and what doesn't. He says that our our all of this stuff of corporate culture, I mean, it really comes out of the Industrial Revolution. He says if you go even before agriculture, that was the first time that you had people working in cooperatives or in, in a collective sense. If you go pre, uh, pre-industrialized or uh, pre-collectivized agriculture, human beings worked in bands that were effectively family and then tribe and then maybe you know, city, state, maybe you know, larger village or something, but that there were these concentric circles. And the way that work was done was you worked when you had to work and then you rested and you didn't. You worked very hard for a little bit and then you weren't working at all. And there wasn't this sense of constantly going through a set schedule of you just have to work because you have to work because that's what you've been told. He calls it uh, work like a lion. I, I saw this recently where... You know, a lion, if you ever see them, those of you like me, I used to spend way too much time watching all of these uh, nature, you know, history shows. There he is on the Serengeti plain, stalking his prey, you know, all, all that stuff. You're like, ooh, is the lion, is a cheetah going to catch the gazelle this time or the antelope or whatever? And I, I actually, somebody who used to root for the big cats, I just think they're really cool. Uh, but he says that a lion, most of the day you see them, they're they're hanging out. They're kind of lying. They're lying. Pardon me, bad pun, but they're lying around. They're just conserving energy, staying out of the heat. But then they get hungry and it's like, all right, let's go. Let's go and tackle a gazelle and, you know, eat it. And then they have a tremendous expenditure of energy and they hone their skills through that process. Anyway, he says that human beings should approach, should start to think of approaching work more like that. And that the internet, because of the infinite leverage that it has, allows this. Sure, you may not have been able to get the work that you want, especially any kind of virtual work or creative information economy-based work, if you could only rely on what was immediately available in your town. But now because of the internet, you know, I, I've paid... I paid a graphic designer in Tel Aviv to do work for me recently. Uh, you know, I, I've outsourced, I've had people work on designs for this or logos for that or, you know, send me a proposal for this all over the world. And that, that is going to be eventually the direction that a lot of careers, a lot of work uh, starts to go in because you're really not necessarily, going back to this five-hour workday, you're not necessarily more productive. You're certainly not necessarily happier by spending more hours in the office. There's only so much real intellectual energy that you have on any given day. I mean, even doing this show, I mean, I do a three-hour radio show every day. My three-hour show is about the max of what I think I can do at a certain level. If I did an eight-hour radio show every day, I could probably do it. And if, you know, Team Buck wants to make it rain dollar-dollar bills up in here, you know, I could probably do that for you guys if, you know, if, if the numbers were right. But it would be brutal. And by the fourth hour, by the fifth hour, I'd be, I've actually done six hours of radio in one day. So I've, I've gone through this before. Your voice starts to give out a little bit. And you, yeah, I mean, you know, the Republicans and the, the Democrats. And you start to just, you know, your brain just turns to mush after a while. I think about all these people I know working in investment banking and corporate law, these different professions. And so much of 
their value is considered how long do you spend in the office? Much more than how good are you at this thing? How efficient are you at completing this task? And that's a, that's a, a, a redesign of our whole approach to working in, in corporate environments. I, mean, I, I think that we're going to see more efforts at this because work-life balance, especially, and now I sound like one of these consultants that talks about this, but work-life balance for millennials, for the younger generations, people don't, people don't want to work for the same company for 40 years and retire. They don't want to do that. They want to go through phases. By the way, Naval Ravikant, going back to this conversation, he says that you think of the, the way that uh, in some of the earliest iterations of career in Western civilization, like in ancient Rome, you were a student and then you were a soldier and then you were a farmer and then you were, a, you know, a, perhaps a merchant and then you were a statesman and there were different life phases and it wasn't all just you do one thing or that's a new a new phenomenon, not one that we necessarily have to all just agree to and replicate. So five-hour workdays, would that be cool? I think it would. Is it worth a shot at more places to see if they can get the work done with fewer distractions and greater expectations of output? Yeah, I do. Because spending our lives in cubes just because that's what we're told to do doesn't seem like a good idea to me. And if we could all get out of that mentality... I think we could be living much healthier, happier corporate lives. I really do. Just want to say, I hope you all are enjoying the new Pluto stream that we do here of the show. If you haven't checked it out yet, channel 248 on Pluto TV. The app is totally free. Uh, We're running my show and Jesse Kelly's show on the first, which is the name of the channel, channel 248. And uh, so far, feedback's been very positive. Any thoughts you have, by the way, please do share. You can send us your uh, requests or recommendations for Pluto TV on facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. And then, of course, the podcast. As you know, we are sharing this podcast every day by about 3 Eastern, sometimes a little earlier, which means that I want for all of you listening this to be your daily download. And if you know anybody who listens to podcasts, please do pass along to them. They need to check out the Buck Sexton Show. The best thing they can do is subscribe on iTunes or the iHeart app. It's a really easy thing to do. Next time you're talking to anyone in your life who listens to podcasts, be like, yo, have you checked out the Buck Sexton Show? Tell them to give it a listen. Totally free. All about freedom. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. I have some updates for you on the story of uh, James Younger. We talked about this uh, earlier in the week. James Younger is the seven-year-old boy. I know I'm supposed to say they instead of he now. This is what I'm told. Seven-year-old boy who is at the center of a court-mandated, court-involved custody dispute that has to do with gender affirmation and gender transition. Essentially, this is, we are told, a seven-year-old transgender girl, I suppose, right? Because if if you're a boy, you're trying to be trans. Seven-year-old transgender girl. That's That's what the story is. That's what we are being told. Okay, let's um, let's look at this for a moment, shall we? The Washington Post has a a version of this story up today. I thought it was very interesting. Um, first off, that they like to use they being the Washington Post like to use they, which is a plural pronoun for a seven year old boy now, because the mother, Doctor Georgulus, uh, George George I think that's how you say her name. Uh, says that this young child is, in fact, transgender. Just an interesting note here, because I've pointed this out before. Uh, 
um, that this doctor, and this I'm sure surprises pretty much uh, no one, has a medical practice where she talks a lot about, she she advertises uh, modern parenting. She's a lib, folks. The doctor's a big liberal. This is exactly what I would have expected. And, and I'm sure if we were to dig into this a little bit, the doctor, it's just a coincidence that this pediatrician who has custody of these twins, and, and one of them is this boy, uh, this pediatrician is, I'm sure, very vocal and very uh, committed to transgender rights and transgenderism. I'd be willing to bet if you were to dig into this some more, you'd find out. And now I'm not saying that that necessarily means that Dr. George Julius has engaged in brainwashing of a seven-year-old to affirm a certain political purpose or to uh, be part of... It's really a political affirmation, not gender affirmation that's happening here. But I am saying it's suspicious. I am saying there's a part of me that goes, wow, another progressive who happens to... You know, it's never some... It's never parents who are like, yeah, we're just like normal parents, you know, go to church on Sunday, like take the kids to get some ice cream. It's always parents who are you know, big proponents of alternative lifestyles and transgenderism and modern new age parenting and, you know, have a lot of wind chimes in their house and, you know, essential oils and stuff. Those seem to be the parents that somehow have transgender kids. I'm not talking about transgender adults. I'm talking about transgender kids. This is just a fact. There is this correlation between people who are transgender activists and then all of a sudden they have a they have a child and that child is transgender. Oh, remember some some study that came out of Brown University a little while ago that had to be suppressed, had to be suppressed. In fact, it was peer reviewed, published and then retracted. The study was a look at whether among children, transgenderism was psychologically contagious. That's not what they that's not how they phrase it, but that's. Essentially what the study study looked at, meaning that when one student shows up at school and says, hey, I'm transgender, when it's a seven or eight, nine year old, then the likelihood of another student deciding that he or she is transgender goes up dramatically. Now, you could say that maybe that's because, oh, this one student had all along been transgender and that this just broke the dam, so to speak. Or you could see the amount of attention and special privilege and elevation given to the transgender student who is seven or eight years old. And another impressionable seven or eight year old child sees this and goes, maybe I am, too. You know, I'd I'd like to get all this attention. That study was they, they burned it to the ground. They pretended it never happened. They pulled it off the Internet. They, oh, we can't. And it was a study done by people who look at the issue of transgenderism. It was a, a, a academic peer-reviewed article that came to the conclusion that, yeah, transgenderism is effectively a psychological contagion for kids. They see it and then they think, well, maybe I am too, which means that it's not some innate characteristic at birth. It's a social construct that might have also deep psychological roots, but whether or not those deep psychological roots should be affirmed is a very difficult and uh, complicated question, isn't it? So I just would note that there's always, they'll pretend the science is on their side here, but any science that the left doesn't like about this stuff, they will negate. I have seen already some debates around this where 
transgender activists will say, what about intersex people? And I've, I'm, I've been on this from the beginning. I've been saying this in the beginning. If it's about intersex individuals, then they're claiming that there's a physical distinction that makes someone transgender that does not exist in a vast majority, over 99% of transgender cases. Transgenderism is almost entirely a psychological phenomenon with no physical roots whatsoever. So to point to somebody who has the very genetically aberrant or unusual characteristics of some male and some female genitalia, also known as being a hermaphrodite, that's, that was a previous term. People don't, that term has fallen out of favor now or they don't like it, which is fine. I don't care. I'm just saying it's uh, now we're, we're, we're to refer to it as intersex. But the reality of intersex individuals really has nothing to do with the transgender debate because transgender individuals are not intersex. And that's not the and, and intersex uh, individuals have been for a long time. Usually there there's much greater, uh, you know, the, the sexual characteristics are more clearly one gender than the other. And then a determination is made to go with that gender. And sometimes it's very minimal or vestigial characteristics of the other gender that can be dealt with quickly at birth. And then anyway, not to get too into the details here, because uh, I've, I've read a bit about this stuff. But what we have now is a progressive crusade underway. You see, in the state of Texas, until this case, it had been standard. Remember, this is a, a family court case. It's being decided by, I'm sure if we looked into this judge's background, you'd find out very pro-transgender rights, probably has gone to like, you know, uh, women's march rallies. I mean, I'm sure. All right. I mean, you just this stuff. I'm never surprised by any of this. So you have a female judge who has given sole custody of these twins, including the uh, young James, well, young James, younger, uh, to the mother, Dr. Georgilis, who is a modern medical practitioner, whatever that means. I think a lot of wind chimes and essential oils in that office, would be my guess. And she has decided, uh, this judge has decided to break with what is usually the case. Usually the parent who... As the Washington Post writes, there's so much politicization in this Washington Post. What's supposed to be a hard news piece. First of all, they're using a plural pronoun, they, to refer to a child, which is just, it's just weird. It just reads in a clunky fashion. It doesn't make any sense. It's not a they. It's a he or a she. There's, there's really no other way to. <sighs> but they also say that those parents in the past who have been gender suppressive, ah, instead of gender affirming, have tended to get custody. Meaning the parent who says, this, was, this person was born a boy, I'm raising him as a boy, I don't care what the wife or the husband says here, had been the one that got custody. This judge, in this case, has flipped it around and said, oh, nope, nope, nope. Full custody to the gender affirming or gender transition proponent parent in this case. Hmm. This is... One of the reasons why Texas Governor Abbott is looking into this and this has become an issue that is getting a lot of national attention because this is a case that will have ramifications for other cases like it across the country. Isn't it also just to take a step back for this for a minute, isn't it stunning how much time the country and the media spends on transgender rights issues given that the transgender percentage of the population is less than 1%, and I believe it's less than 0.1%. And yet we spent a tremendous amount of time on this. 
and we have discussed why. It's in part because they believe this is the new a new civil rights crusade, and the left is always looking for a new civil rights uh, crusade, or per- perhaps they would say they prefer jihad to crusade. I don't know. You know, the terminology is constantly changing, uh, but they're always looking for something, and this is an, an instance where they can bring to bear all the rhetoric about social justice and uh, but as we know gender eradication really radical gender equality such that gender is no longer allowed to be a characteristic that affects your life at all which is bizarre because you know there's men and women making babies propagation of the species but but to get as close as possible to eliminating and eradicating those distinctions is a goal of the left and has been since the earliest days of uh, Marx and the, the radical socialists who follow his theories or just the socialists who follow his theories. Uh, they've been trying to eradicate gender difference for a very long time. You saw this in the Soviet Union. You see this in many other countries. This was true in Mao's China, by the way. Women were not supposed to dress in a way that was they were visibly women. It, was, it became the fashion to dress in a way that was very similar to men because they were going to be workers. They're going to be at the plants. They're going to be part of the industrialization process. Uh, it's also why you had a massive child care program, you know, because we're going to take care of your kids, Elizabeth Warren says. Uh, we're going to have ch- massive child care. The Soviet Union had that. The state will take care of your kids. There's no more maternal, paternal. Forget all that. You make the baby, you hand it over to the state. You just go work. You go labor for the state, and then the state takes a percentage of your labor and gives it to other people, and that's supposed to create a utopia actually creates a nightmare, but libs never seem to learn this lesson. Um, but back to James Younger. Also in this piece, I mean, and I, I, I don't want to read you the whole segment. It's in the Washington Post today. It's by Teo Armus. If you want to read it yourself, you're welcome to. Who are saying, oh, there's so much misinformation around the case of James Younger. Now Luna Younger, we're told, according to the mother who has sole custody. And I have to say, um, the way that they try to make it sound like it's misinformation is stunning. They, they, they go to doctors. Now, doctors are being appropriated in this process, too. Doctors are having their arms twisted. You know, there was a reason that they had an MD at the head of Planned Parenthood recently with Lena Wen, who, by the way, wasn't radical enough. Wasn't radical enough for Planned Parenthood. We know we figured that out. They don't want to. They don't really want an MD. They want just a, a true, pure ideologue, Planned Parenthood. Uh, abortion always, forever, for any reason at any time. That's the only acceptable stance. They also want doctors involved in this process, and I've seen some of them getting very vocal on Twitter. And doctors who will say shockingly stupid things that just because they have an MD doesn't make it right. There are there there is no such thing as a gender transition surgery that gives functional sexual organs of the other sex to the gender transitioning individual. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. So they can keep saying that gender transition surgery, this, that, and the other thing, you cannot actually transition to a functioning set of sex organs of the other sex. Doesn't work. Can't do it. And this is why these slogans you'll see on social media that are repeated by leftist imbeciles, like not only women get periods, false. Only women get periods. Only women menstruate. Mm. Only men can create the stuff that, you know, makes the babies with, you know, anyway, we all remember this from health class. 
But what do they say the misinformation is? Oh, they have all these huffy experts. Oh, they're so, so outraged at the conservative misinformation. Say they're, they're not going to start young Luna Younger, formerly James, on, on uh, you know, massive hormones right away. That's such a lie. They wouldn't do that. That's not how the process of gender affirmation works. And then you read down the article that they're like, it wouldn't really start till puberty. So at least like three or four years before that happens. Oh, okay. In that case. So we're not going to put the puberty blockers in the seven-year-old based on the fact that he liked the movie Frozen and wanted to wear a dress one day. And his mom's like, oh, great. I've got a gender transition here. That's what happened. I think. Uh now we're going to be told, well, there's nothing really to worry about here because they're not going to mess with this kid's hormones and as well as his psychology at a stage of development that is incredibly uh, important for any human being and is a bit challenging and precarious for people without all these different, you know, puberty and all this can bring in changes and emotions and glandular and, you know, all, you know, all the stuff that we all know that happens. Oh, okay. So we're the bad people because we're saying, oh my gosh, they're going to they're gonna set this kid up to do hormone therapy. And, and the Washington Post goes to cite experts. And it's just so smug and all these stupid conservatives out there. Oh, yeah. They're not going to do it for at least like three or four years, man. Kid will be 10 or 11 at that point. 10 or 11-year-olds could basically run the country. Oh, as we know, the libs think that actually we should listen to like young teenagers and adolescents about how to run the country, as long as they say left-wing slogans that they've been, that have been dictated to them by their parents. This is lunacy. This is child abuse. This is wrong. This is wrong. And the people that are supporting it, the Washington Post, and other, they're, they're a disgrace. It's very clear. And I see people pointing out, you know, we live in a country now where if you, um, you know, spank a child, not even particularly hard and, you know, whatever, you're a child abuser, according to the law. And if you pump your child full of hormones to block puberty, you are a left-wing hero. I don't think that's the way it should be. Early this morning, the government of Turkey informed my administration that they would be stopping combat and their offensive in Syria and making the ceasefire permanent, and it will indeed be permanent. However, you would also define the word permanent in that part of the world as somewhat questionable. We all understand that, but I do believe it will be permanent. Ceasefire as of now seems to be holding. I, I remember being told, what was it, last week, that there was genocide happening, that this was this blood would be on the hands of the Trump administration forever. How could you not understand, Buck? I had conservatives who were coming after me, friends of mine, people I know well. How could you not see what a horrible betrayal this is and that it means the Kurds will be left to the mercy of, uh, well, what were they, what was the alternative going to be here? It turns out the Kurds are striking a deal with the Russians. And guess what? We are finally, it seems, shrinking our battlefield efforts in the Middle East, or at least beginning to shrink our battlefield efforts in the Middle East. And I would just note that the hysteria that greeted this initially was, as I was saying, it was as though Trump had been asleep at the, at the wheel and we had been hit with Pearl Harbor. 
people are acting like this was the worst national security calamity of a generation. And it was a border dispute between Turkey and the Kurds that has been happening for 30 years. And it didn't last more than a couple of days. And guess what? Now they've got some kind of an agreement and it looks like there's a framework going forward. So who so far looks like they had more of a sense of what was really going on here? The national security intelligentsia were saying that Trump was crazy or the Trump administration that is doing what they said all along they would do. And in other news, there has been a renewed focus, not just on the Syria conflict, because that was all meant to be a, a means of attacking Trump. Right. That that's why the media all of a sudden became such tremendous fans of the Kurds and uh, what was going on in Syria. They acted like it had been a stable and nice and happy place for the last six or seven years. And all of a sudden, Trump came along and ruined everything. There's also a greater focus on what is really a forgotten war in eastern Ukraine right now between the Russians and the Ukrainians. And I think there are some aspects of that that you uh, will not hear in the media that I want to share with you before we uh, get into roll call today. One is uh, it's effectively trench warfare. I mean, literally trench warfare. They're building trenches and the enemies are uh, the two combatant sides are separated by really a, a couple hundred yards from each other, um, separated by or separated and, and in trenches. There's some use of artillery. There's really no planes that are being used right now. So there's not really an aerial component to this. Uh, the Ukrainians cannot use uh planes to help them out because of Russian air defense systems that are in the hands of the Russian-backed separatists. And I'm told by people I know who are experts in the region that the Russian-backed separatists are in many cases just Russian, who are pretending to be um, from this Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Some interesting backstory on this, though. You wouldn't get this from the media. The Donbass region is where all the coal and the industry is in Ukraine. And in fact, Donbass pays... For much of the budgets, Ukraine is broken up into provinces or states somewhat like America's. And uh, the eastern part, which is also the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, many people who grow up in this region of Ukraine, are their first language is Russian, and they learn Ukrainian. Uh, but the Russian-speaking part of the country is where the money is. And the uh, western part of the country, which is the more pro-Western, as in pro-European Union and American... Uh, there's a lot of tension and animosity between what are really two cultures within the same state. They say that the Ukrainians in the East are unsophisticated. They're sort of like the, I don't know, the equivalent of you know hillbillies or something in Ukraine, and they have nasty words for them. And so there's always been this this tension, and Putin has played off of that by. Suggest, by, by starting this invasion and also obviously the annexation of, of Crimea by picking off these areas where there is uh, a history of a Russian culture, Russian language, and where they feel like they are not being treated well by the state. So, the, you know, the dynamics here are a little bit more complicated than just the straightforward, oh, well, like there's this invasion and we're all it's, it's just the Russians there. Yeah, what the Russians are doing is bad. I think the casualties, they say, are 15,000 in this war. So people are, people are fighting and dying on the front, uh, the front lines of this, of this conflict. And 
what I think is so interesting, the president Trump came along as like, let's send Javelin anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians. And now there, there's some reporting they're not supposed to use them on the front lines, but they have them. Well, I think that means that the Russians aren't supposed to know where they have them. And if the Russians try to just overrun the Ukrainian fighting positions with heavy armor, then they could rush to the front, these Javelin. So just the presence, they have bought them. They have these Javelin anti-tank missiles that are very effective, especially in in a relatively close combat against armor. And they, I believe, have also sent them sniper rifles, which given that you're in trench warfare and you're separated by a few hundred yards really makes a big difference. Uh, the Trump administration has been more helpful and more willing to risk Russia's ire in this conflict by giving lethal aid. The Europeans would not give lethal aid to the Ukrainian military, would not do it. America, under the Obama administration, would not give lethal aid to the Ukrainian military to stop this Russian advance and really the carving up of a part of eastern Ukraine as, as a province of Russia. Trump comes along. We're told that he's Putin's puppet. We're told all these terrible things about him. And he says, no, let's do that thing that the Obama administration was unwilling to do. And so I, I think that this is all helpful to know when we're talking about the military aid. The military aid was not held up. The military aid continued. It's been very necessary. You know, Ukraine is not a wealthy country, um, does not have a particularly uh, high level and professional military. So they really do need the assistance. And the Trump administration has provided that assistance and has actually provided more assistance than Obama did. So if we're going to talk about this, I think we should at least have those basic facts in place. And uh, with that, my friends, the roll call. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want to join us here on the show, please do. Start off with Mesa. She writes, Producer Mark. Oh, look at this. Now we get fan mail for Producer Mark. Love your witty comments during the show. Your friendly disagreements with Buck keep cracking, cracking me up. Keep up the good work. Mesa. Mesa, you are my favorite listener. There we go. Number one, Mesa. So that's all, that's all it took. But uh, thank you so much for writing in. Producer Mark is smiling ear to ear. And um, he uh, trust me, he will continue to keep me keep me honest and keep me in check here in the hut. You know, my head's already big. He doesn't want it to get figuratively big. So that's why we got producer Mark here to make sure it all it all stays on task. Adam. It's, wow. Another producer. Buck, I think you should task producer Mark with adding a lot more movie drops like Let Off Some Steam, Bennett, or Dogs and Cats Living Together, Mass Hysteria, Shields High. Producer Mark, would you be up for adding in some movie drops? Uh, maybe if I get some help here in the Freedom Hunt. Yeah, because right now, you guys can't see it, but Producer Mark is operating like several computers all at once. Yeah, I got like computers six computers It looks a little bit like, uh, remember the guy in the Matrix who's got all the computers? But yes. yeah, yeah. Your, your setup that is like guy. that. Yeah. yeah, except you have to kind of move around to the chair to get to all. At of least I have a rolly chair, so I can just use my legs yeah. to get around. He's like he's like swirling and and swiveling around during the whole show to try to get to all the different computers to make this thing. We're like a we're like a two man band in here where you're playing. There's playing a lot of different instruments, and you'd never know. Yeah, and you're the singer. 
I just sing. Exactly. That's right. He does all the other stuff. He's running around. He's doing drums and tambourine and guitar and playing the bass behind his back and doing all kinds of stuff like that. Basically. Yeah, good job. Thank you. Well done. Mark, I don't get why we are uh, fretting so much about the Kurds since it was their homeland being targeted by ISIS. Wasn't it, it really us helping them instead of them helping us? The Kurds really don't share our values. They adhere to Sharia law, and over half of their women are subjected to FGM. These people are not really our friends. We just shared a common enemy. Well, Mark, the Kurds were, were staunch allies, and I would say that my time with the Kurds in Iraq would, uh, would tell me that they, they have built an enclave of, of stability and, and real civilization in northern Iraq, including during the worst times in that war or when, when things were the most unstable in Iraq. So I do think they deserve some some credit uh, for that. And they have not stabbed Americans in the back. Uh, they have not been um, a, an untrustworthy partner on the battlefield for the most part, with probably very, very few exceptions. So, and, and as to, I, I'd have to look at the numbers. I do know that there has been, there is some uh, FGM, uh, which is female genital mutilation, which is practiced in some of the Kurdish areas. I do. There's also I, I do not know what the percentage is, and I also don't know how extreme. Without getting into details, how extreme the procedure is, there is some variance in that as well. Uh, Steve writes, Buck. I've historically only been a podcast downloader, which gives me the convenience to listen when I have breaks in my day. Recently, I've been tuning into channel 248, the first on Pluto TV, and letting it run on my center monitor while I'm working. Very happy with this option. Uh, Side note, you recently praised the movie Tombstone, and you were 100% spot on. It's the best modern Western ever made, and my number one favorite movie of all time. Shields High, have a great day, Steve. Well, Steve, thank you, my man. Yeah, Tombstone, it's a great, highly, highly watchable movie. My brothers and I have sometimes argued this a little bit because at least one of my brothers doesn't like the scene where Kurt Russell walks out in the river and goes, no, no. Do you know what I'm talking about, Mark? You haven't seen Tombstone? Oh, my God. Team, you got you to gotta light producer Mark up on this one. That's just, that's, just unac- that's just madness. That's just unacceptable. He has to watch Tombstone. You would actually like it, by the way. We're not giving you annoying homework. It's a really, really good movie uh but yeah that that scene didn't really like all that much i, I thought it was great i, I, I think it's val Kilmer's best work um someone wrote don't read this on air so i won't but i'll read it later karen uh okay send me a link chris oh here we go remember your comments on air regarding the beto gun reform proposal you're wrong. Beto was right. Firearm deaths close to forty thousand, and not close to fifteen thousand. No, Chris, you're not very. You're, you're not listening, sir. Firearm deaths. I'm not including suicides in gun violence. Suicides are different than people being shot because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, or from gangs, or from murders, or whatever. And that's just a distant. That's because if somebody wants to commit suicide, there are a lot of ways to do it that you know don't involve a gun. So by conflating. All gun violence, suicides and gun violence together, it's just meant to inflate the statistics. So, yeah, Chris, pay attention. Try to, try to think a little more. Try to, try to do a little more work on that one. Uh, let's see. Jen writes, finally looked up what Pluto was after you kept mentioning it. Very cool. 
well, Jen, thank you. I think it's very cool, too. So, yeah, I like it. Andrew. Look, last night you compared your, uh, someone compared your Warren impression to uh, Towley from South Park. You mispronounced the name and I had to start running through characters in my head. It says, compared to your Warren impersonation. After I thought through about four, I realized it was Towley, a pot-smoking towel who's only worried when he can get high and famously asked the kids if they want to get high. Ask producer Mark to pull a clip of Towley and then do Warren... Do Warren the same thing, and I guess we can see the similarities. Although Towley has a better grip on reality. Do you know what we're talking about here with Towley? Now that he described the character, I kind of think I do. But there's a lot of terrible stuff in South Park, so there's so many characters. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say... Terrible in a good way, I mean. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, I like some of the South Park stuff that I've seen. I just can't watch that much of a cartoon. I kind of tune out cartoons after a while. Yeah. But some of the stuff is brilliant. And I do need to watch. Apparently, they went after China, legitimately went after China in a recent episode. Yeah, did they play a clip? They did. Do you, do you have it? I had it uh, oh, no, last we, no, we, week. We, we, I don't know. We might have played it. I wasn't here. Was yeah, you weren't here. here. Uh, banned in China before it got banned in China. That's pretty cool. That's what they did. They named the episode Banned in China, yeah. I think. And then it actually got banned in it China. It did, yeah. They also did Muhammad in a bear costume, which I got to say, that's, uh, yep. They are uh, comedians not afraid to not afraid. make anyone angry. Not afraid. Muhammad in a bear costume was a thing that they did, and uh, I give them I give them credit. Uh, there we go. Uh, Greg writes, Buck, sorry, I don't know how else to get to you. On Tuesday Night Show, you mentioned a South Park character. His name is Tally. Okay, well, a lot of stuff on the South Park character, Tally. Thank you, sir. Um. Uh, Cindy writes Tucker tonight, guest saying, of course Hillary's entering the race. You rock as usual. Well, thank you, Cindy. I've been saying for a long time, I thought Hillary, you know, I've I've been somebody said, just wait, just wait. I think she might. I think she might. So we'll see if I'm right on that one. Because I tend to be, which is one of the fun parts about being me, tending, tending to be right. Although producer Mark would tell you, except when I disagree with him. So I guess it's good that he's here because that means that occasionally, allegedly, I'm incorrect. Uh, let's see. Um, what, where did it go? I think, we, I think we lost it. Well, you know what I'll do? I'll pull up because we only got a, a couple minutes left here. I want to pull up some of the, of the emails if I can, um, which would be easier to do if... Nope, I lied. Sorry, guys. The computer... So this is one of my, my great frustrations when you do a live show is if you're reliant on technology, sometimes these things will just crap out on you. And uh, this is one of those moments because my computer froze. Brian! It unfroze. Hey, Buck, shield's high. Great. One thing, though. Be nice to truckers. You were stereotypical last night about us being blitzed on energy drinks. We work our tails off and get nothing but grief. Brian, I love truckers. I was trying to give like a high five and some some love to truckers. I was not trying to in any way impugn what is a very important and very honorable profession, sir. So if that was in any if that in any way came across, I apologize. I was just trying to joke around. Um, but you know, I'm just saying I would have if I were going to pull a long haul trip of any kind, I would have to drink a lot of caffeine because I have to drink a lot of caffeine to just do the show. But no, no, no. We team buck. We love truckers. A lot of you listen to the show across the country. So thank you and please continue to listen. Uh, Rich, another perspective on the term lynching, drowning out his uh, Trump's tweet. 
is that the press would not have covered that tweet and its broader message without the offensive word. In effect, he baits the hook. Mm, Richard, I think your analysis here is creative. I'm not sure. So I get, I mean, meaning that you're thinking outside the box. I don't know if I could really agree with the assessment, though, because in my estimation, everything else in that tweet was really lost. They only reported on lynching. You didn't hear about what he said before the lynching. Yes, you could make the case, and I think you would make the case, that because you have to include the full text of the tweet, you're not going to usually excerpt a tweet. Uh, maybe that meant that more people saw it, but Trump is. Uh, people already see Trump's tweets all over the all over the place. So there you have it. Lloyd writes, "Buck Mitt's Twitter handle in English is delightful Peter. Go figure. Shields high. Is that repeat? I mean, Pierre is obviously Pierre is obviously Peter, but the delecto is that really? Is it delightful? I don't know. I mean, maybe. I guess that could be the case." I don't know, Mitt Romney, man. I'm disappointed. I, I really, I was pretty pro Mitt back in 2012. He does not follow me from what I stand, by the way, on Twitter. So apparently he doesn't like the Bucksters Twitter game. Well, thank you all for listening to the show. Thank you for uh, hanging out with me here on the first Pluto TV channel 248, the best new channel anywhere. You guys need to all be watching it. Tell your friends. And uh, please do spread the word about the podcast of the Buck Sexton Show. It's the best. And with that, I bid you adieu and shields high.